there are some there at the door. And since Matt's walking that way, just raise your hand. He'll come by and give you one uh, if you need a handout. Now, it's the same handout, same outline, actually, as last time. But since it's been a couple of weeks since we met, it's been at least a couple of weeks, I think, we had the Lord's Supper Sunday, and we don't have Sunday nights on that, and I, I don't think we had Sunday night, like Valentine's Day Sunday, and, you know, gave, gave you that night off. So it's been at least a couple of weeks since we've been into this, and so we're still working on Psalm 119, um, verses uh, 16 to 24, but we did verse 16, so we'll, we'll pick it up at verse 17. But if you don't have that handout, or you just need something extra, something else to write on, raise your hand. Matt's right there. He'll give you. He'll give you a copy. So, so think about this with me. Uh, let me give you three words. Think about it in relationship to your Christian life, both both what you get and what you should be giving. Uh, uh, just three simple words: study, teaching, and preaching. Okay, teaching and preaching, but, but prior to being able to teach and preach, study. So study, teaching, that may be done in a devotion, that may be done in discipleship, that, that may be done any number of ways. Preaching, uh, you know, I believe in women preachers, I believe your kids should be preachers. I think every, you know, they ought to be preaching at school. I think everybody ought to be preaching, but obviously there is kind of different context for preaching. So, okay, study, teaching, and preaching. Now I'm going to give you three more words that parallel those. Exegesis, exposition, and exhortation. Exegesis, that's what you do when you study. Why? Because the words are the key to the Bible. The words are. That's why under study you do exegesis, because exegesis is explaining uh, the meaning of every English word as you go through it. Now, now some of this I'm just building off of what you get in our discipleship too. So if you've been through discipleship too, and a big chunk of that's related to how to study the Bible, and we give you maybe 20 rules on Bible study, 20, 20 things about studying your Bible, and one of those is the key to the Bible is its words, and so, okay, that's, that's why you need exegesis when you're doing study. How should I study? Well, just start with that one thing. Just, just start by going word by word. So since the words are the key, exegesis. Now, since context is king, then you need exposition. So not just word by word, but within each book, you need chapter by chapter, and you know you need to line it out. Let, you know you have to put the verses in their context, so you don't. So it's not just exegesis of the individual words; it's exposition of a passage. Now, typically today, most you know, so many so many churches that we're aware of, they don't preach they don't do exposition they do you know never get bible exposition i mean the type of church i grew up in every sunday was a topical message and this was very frustrating to me when i was in college when i was high schooler when i'm coming as a high schooler and i'm coming to church and i'm bringing my bible and you know unfortunately a pastor gets up and you know, I actually had a pretty good pastor, and he was better than most. But but many of the preachers he had in 
as guest speakers, you know, they'd get up, open their Bible, read one verse, and then just go on a rant for like 35 minutes, 40 minutes, 45 minutes. And I'm like, why did I even bring my Bible today? I didn't learn my Bible. Why did I even bring it? I mean, it's just really frustrating to me. You know, we had, you know, we started off tonight with a, with a hymn, uh, 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 you know, uh, it, it, which is a good hymn. It is old school. And I was flipping through my Instagram. There's a, a particular preacher I happen to follow on Instagram, and they had old school Sunday. Now, old school for them meant he was in a robe when he preached, and he's preaching in a robe, and, and it was, man, it was great stuff. He's hooping. It, I mean, it was fantastic. And would to God we had that type of old school. But the, but the, you know, typically church I went in, there was just as much emotion, only it wasn't joyous type stuff. It was really kind of angry, you know, about what you shouldn't be doing, what you shouldn't be watching, what you shouldn't be listening to, you know, and all of that. And, you know, it just wore me out. I think we lost a whole generation because of that, because we, which is why when it came time for me to think about if I'm going to get a, if I'm going to go beyond a, a bachelor's degree, if I'm going to do graduate studies, you know, besides doing the Bible, which, which I love biblical studies, uh, you know, let me, let me get a degree in uh, expository preaching. Let me get a degree in exposition. Now, I, I, I know it hasn't helped me out any, and I didn't learn anything. I understand that. Uh, but at least I got a degree, and and so uh, so that's what you know. That's that next step. You got study for which you need every word out of the mouth of God, so you can do exegesis. But then, since context is king, and you got to put all those words in context, you kind of need Bible exposition, not just a topical. A thematic uh, thing all the time, and usually, like today, even if I'm doing a topic like the Holy Spirit, and we're in a series on the Holy Spirit, I took a passage out of the book of James to break that open to discuss that topic. So for me, at least, even, you know, my topical studies, I like to, to, uh, to uh, do expositionally. Obviously, uh, next Sunday, Lord willing, if we finish out the book of Romans, it's going to be chapter 16. What's well, the whole chapter in one Sunday? That's going to be exposition. So we've got study, teaching, but the last thing is preaching. So you got to get the words because the words are the key. So you got to do exegesis. You got to, yeah, context is king. You got to put it back in context. So it has to be exposition. But since truth has to be applied in life, then you need, you need exposition. You need exhortation. I guess another word besides exhortation that you put that with that is, is edification. Okay, but you need exhortation. Turn to you know, Proverbs chapter 30. Get Proverbs 30 in your left hand. Luke chapter 4 in your right hand. This is just our introduction to get us in back into Psalm 119 tonight. What, what we are missing in our Christianity is English Bible explanation. I think. I mean, I think we're just missing that compared to the way uh, that the Bible's approached and and Christians, at least here in America, got the Bible in uh, years and decades past. I think we're missing that the Bible explanation uh, and and exposition, and when when we do this, not uh, concept by concept. 
which is all you can get out of a modern translation, because that's their philosophy of translating, and not just book by book, and not just by chapter or by paragraph, but each verse word by word. The name for that is exegesis. English Bible exegesis is the possibility of having, knowing you have, and then understanding every word out of the mouth of God. Proverbs 30, look at verse 5. Somebody who uh, has a great um, playground vo- outside playground voice, stand up and read Proverbs 30, verse 5 for us. Amen. And that is a great outside voice. Now, someone else who has great outside playground voice, so every word of God is pure, every word of God. Hold it, you have to have every word. You can't just have a translation giving you, well, you know, it's, it's bringing over the same idea. No, you kind of have to have the words in your language because it's pure. And that is what will be a shield if you put your trust in it. Now, that's the whole thing we talked about this morning. If you missed it, catch it on YouTube. Okay, Luke chapter 4, verse 4. Somebody stand up and read that. Luke 4, verse 4. Did everybody lost their voice? Everybody else? Okay, Brian. By every word of God. And yet we don't do that today because we've missed the fact that the King James Bible is, is God's words in English. <laughs> you know, there's just, that's not, that's, that's not the, you know, oh, it used to be. I mean, you stop and think about it uh, from 1611 to 1881. It is the only translation there was. Now, even, uh, you know, even much past 1881, because in 1881, a revised version came out on the other side of the Atlantic in, in Great Britain. The, the revised version came out, and the American translators who participated in that didn't really want to have anything to do with it. So they didn't think it was good, but they were contractually obligated to wait 20 years before they put out their own. So it was not until 1901 that the American Standard Version, the ASV, came out here in America. And then it's like, okay, well, I got this or I got this. And, you know, it it is kind of, you know, Christians only just started getting confused then. Uh, Today we have probably 200 translations. And um, some are more literal than others. But... You know, God gave us his words in English, and when I study how the process got started of trying to redo that, boy, it wasn't a believing process. It is totally a skeptical process. We've lost the idea that used to exist for centuries that we have God's words in English. We miss that today. Uh, that we miss the fact that common people have a common Bible preserved in a received text, a text received through the priesthood of believers, uh, just like the, the compilation of your books was received through the priesthood of believers. So how do we know that these 66 are these 66? Well, because believers who were closer to the original authors knew it was the word of God, and that was passed down and received by us. 
So let me start off tonight with four keys, four ways to master your Bible. Four ways to master your Bible. And I want to shortchange you on this idea, so let me flesh that out a little bit. Four ways to master your Bible. Number one, master it through multiple readings. So that's another thing we miss. We almost would read anything else except read our Bible. I mean, there's so many other books out there. I mean, we, you know, so, 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 you know, some of the most popular books, I don't know if it's New York Times bestseller or a just Christian bookstore bestseller, but we, you know, we get books that are somebody else's idea of what Jesus ought to say to you. And, and it's not the things Jesus actually says in the New Testament. Uh, but those are popular, and we read those. And, you know, I think, I think we've kind of been seduced that way. That we'll read anything almost except read our Bible. And yet, you know, I would just encourage you to do an experiment. So I'm thinking about, I'm toying with the idea when we get done with Romans, maybe, maybe looking at the book of 1 John. So, let, you know, it's a short one. It's only five chapters. Uh, you know, just experiment. Why don't you read 1 John every day this next week? Just a whole book. It's only, you know, what? 15 minutes to read probably. Multiple reading. Read it, read it, not just Monday. Read it again on Tuesday. Read it again on, you know, do it all the way through the week and see how much you see. When you do multiple readings, you can master the Bible by doing multiple readings. Second, you can master it by writing it out. Now, that is what true journaling ought to consist of. Not your thoughts about what is happening to you. Now, I suppose that may be okay if you are at least thinking biblically about your thoughts that you just wrote down. You know what I'm saying? So if you're thinking critically, if you're being a critical thinker about what you wrote down, then maybe that's all right. But if not, why perpetuate that mess? I mean, your mind isn't any better than mine. I know my mind's a mess. Why do I want to just record that for posterity? No, journaling ought to be where I can write out the Word of God. I mean, maybe... Maybe in addition to reading it, let's, let's say we suggested First John. Well, in addition to reading it every day, reading it through completely every day next week, well, maybe Monday evening, write out chapter 1. And on Tuesday, write out chapter 2. And on Wednesday, write out chapter 3. And just, just write out the chapter. That wouldn't even take you that long either. Because each book of the Bible is a complete discussion of, you know, we'd say a single subject overall. I think each book is going to have one major theme or emphasis, although it talks about other things to support that one thing that any given book is talking about. But, you know, you'll, you'll get it better if you not only read it multiple times, but if you, can, if you can write it out, write some of it out multiple times, then you'll see all the different, how all the different parts Rise up. So it's not your thoughts you're putting down into a journal. It is God's thoughts. And if you're going to journal the typical way, which I will say is the mindless way, not the mindful way, or put it this way, you are full of your own mind, but not God's mind. But if you're going to do it that way, well, then at least write out as much of the Bible as what you wrote of your own thoughts. How about that? 
I mean, just make it even. So master it by multiple readings. Master it by writing it out and master it book by book. So if you take up one of the books, you know, just if I throw out the suggestion of 1 John, I'm not obligating myself to preach on 1 John next. I'm just saying, okay. But, but if I were just suggest that, then, okay, uh, you know, you would begin to master. Number four, master it by meditation on words. Now, here is where we get down to English Bible exegesis. How do I exegete the words of my King James Bible? Well, number one, do some word studies. You can do that via a concordance. Either a concordance that you uh, ordered from Amazon, uh, Strong's Concordance, Cruden's Concordance, Young's Concordance, just any Bible concordance is like an index to the Bible, and it lists each, every word of the English Bible alphabetically, and then records every place that word is used. Now, you can also do that online. So you can do a word study just with a simple concordance. So something as you either read 1 John chapter 1 or write out 1 John chapter 1, if something stands out to you and jumps out at you, and you're like, wow, I wonder, I wonder what that means. Okay, look that word up in a concordance and find out all the other places it's used. Now, there are a lot, there's a lot more that goes into that, but, but you can get the more that goes into that in our discipleship too. Secondly, do word studies that are tied to biblical synonyms. So, so okay, so this is the difference between study uh, exposition and preaching. So when I was preaching this morning, I had already done my study. So I already did my English Bible exegesis in order to exhort the congregation. So poor Ehemplo, when it, whenever we were going there through the book of James and it uses the word temptations. Huh, well, what does that mean? What does that mean, temptations? Okay, take in concordance and look it up. Okay, that, that helps me. I can see all the other places that word is used. But secondly, if I happen to use a Strong's Concordance, a Strong's Concordance has every word of the English Bible with a, with a number attached, and that number goes, if it's the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the number of that English word is attached to the Hebrew word it comes from in the Hebrew dictionary in the back of Strong's Concordance. And if it's New Testament, that number is tied, that English word's number is tied to the Greek word in the Greek dictionary in the back of Strong's Concordance. And if you will trace it there to the back, you don't have to know Greek or Hebrew. All you have to do is get that number. Look up the number in the back. Uh, uh, Dr. Strong will not only give you the, the basic definition, but even better. There's a colon, and then there's a bunch of words after that. And after the colon, he is telling you all the ways that the King James translators translated that word. Now, if you get a Young's concordance, a Young's analytical concordance, uh, Dr. Young bring, breaks that out right in front of you right there. 
And you could also do it that way. And it will, it will take and say, okay, for this English word you looked up, uh, here are all the Hebrew words translated that way. So maybe it's kind of the reverse of that. Here's all the Greek words translated that way. If I really want to find the synonyms, as we talked about this morning, well, I'm going to take that number of that word temptations, and I'm going to look at the back, and I'm going to find out it's also translated trials, or to try, as it is in the very next verse, and, and tests. And it's okay, so now, oh, now I understand what temptations means it's not just a solicitation to do evil but is it it's a trial you know god's trying me or he's allowing the devil to try me so do word studies via concordance do word studies tied to the biblical synonym of that word that you may be interested in and you're looking up and third do word studies by finding english definitions let me just suggest yeah and you can do this online you can google it you can go ogle it and find webster's 1828 dictionary and i i only recommend that because uh, that was kind of one of the first definitive uh, dictionaries for the American English language. And uh, well, you, can go to, you can go to a modern Webster's Dictionary, but it's going to have all sorts, so, ma- so much other stuff. You, you might as well just narrow it down to what's going to be more relevant to the English, the King James Bible that you're using. So define words, the English words that are used, and... Lastly, master it by keeping it in context. Uh, uh, So you're going to master it by meditation on words, word studies via concordance, via synonyms, finding definitions, and then number five, master it by keeping it in context because context is king because every word is pure. That means it is straight out of the mouth of God, not straight out of Compton. It is straight out of God's mouth. Uh, through a text that the Holy Spirit preserved for us in history. If I don't believe that, why, why do I want to preach the Bible? I, I mean, I could be a teacher on any number of others' levels. I, I like history. I like history and biography. I don't like mathematics, but I like, you know, there are other things I'd be happy to teach. But I know that in the Bible I have something God has given me that changes human life when it is applied, and so the Bible has to be mastered by its words. Now turn to Psalm 119. So context is king, but English Bible exegesis is supreme because the words are the key to the Bible, and they are the key because there are key terms which set its context. So, poor Amplo, here in Psalm 119, go back to verse 1, look back up to verse 1. I mean, when we get, get started here in a minute, we'll be down at verse 17, but look back up at verse 1. Blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. Because that's how, that's what is going to keep them from being defiled in the way which is so dirty that all of us are walking through in our society, in our Greco-Roman culture today. So it's going to be the law of the Lord. Now, okay, so we haven't asked this question yet, so let me go ahead and answer it. 
here in Psalm 119, why all the emphasis on the law in Psalm 119? I mean, we've talked about how there are 10 synonyms for the Word of God used in Psalm 119, and almost every single verse out of 176 verses talk and use one of those synonyms and talk about the Word of God. Why is it so often this word law? Why the emphasis, you know, out of all the synonyms, law is probably the most prevalent. Well, keep your finger in Psalm 19, but go over to uh, Daniel chapter 9. Over to your right of ways to the prophets, Daniel chapter 9. Uh, and you might notice in just looking there at Psalm 19 in our current section that we are in, verses 16 to 24, the word law is used at verse 18. The word commandments is used in verses 19 and 21. The words judgments and statutes are used in verses 20 and 23. And the reason those words are used for the word of God is because that sets the doctrinal context. The context is not the New Testament. The context is a Jew living under the Old Covenant. Okay, so now watch. Daniel chapter 9, verse, uh, begin with me in verse 24. God's speaking to Daniel. God is, you know, in, in the book of Daniel, he's been giving the history of Gentile world dominion. I mean, it was the first time God actually allowed a Gentile king to destroy his temple, to wipe out Jerusalem. He, he, God needed to give some type of explanation for that. Because either he's God or he's not. But if he is, he needs to tell somebody why he allowed that to happen. And he even told Nebuchadnezzar, gave him a dream, Dream, you know, you read about that in chapter 2. I mean, he didn't speak to him directly because God is only speaking directly and giving his oracles to the Jews. But indirectly, he says to Nebuchadnezzar and says, here, I'll give you this dream. You need to go to this Jew to find out what, what I'm telling you through that dream. So, okay, and, and then later, you know, so then later on here in chapter 9, God's explaining to Daniel, after we get through this period of Gentile world, world, world dominion, how, how is God going to get back to fulfilling his covenant with the Jews? Well, verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Okay, 70 weeks so 77s, so that's 490. And it is not sevens of days. It's like we use the word dozen. If you walk into Duncan and use the word dozen, they know what you want a dozen of, right? It's not a dozen cigarettes, okay? It's, it's donuts, well, the context here is years. Daniel is thinking years. And God says, okay, here's what's going to happen. I, I have dealt with you people in multiple segments of 490 years each. So from Abraham to the Exodus was 490 years. From the Exodus to, uh, 
you know, uh, starting the building of the temple was 490 years. And so, so 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Look what's going to happen in that period of time. I'm going to finish the transgression. I'm going to make an end of sins. I'm going to make reconciliation for iniquity. I'm going to bring in everlasting righteousness. I'm going to seal up the vision and prophecy. I'm going to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, which is not going to occur until under Ezra and Nehemiah, Artaxerxes makes a, you know, and, and, and Cyrus says, look, you guys can go back now. And so we're talking 445 BC that that ends up happening. From, from that point, so that's the beginning of this 490 years. From, from the going for the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, seven years, and then three score and two weeks, 62 sevens of years, and by the end, so, so the street shall be built again, the wall, even in troublous times, uh, and then after those three score and two weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. Okay, so that takes us from uh, the decree to, to, to restore and rebuild up until the crucifixion of Christ. Now I've got 69 weeks are done. Total seven and 62, so 69 are done. But I've, but hold it, there's one missing. There's Daniel's 70th week. What? What will happen? There's a break here. And the prince that shall come, that's going to be the Antichrist. What's he going to do? Verse 27, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. That last one. And in the midst of that week, he will cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. So the Jews will have been allowed to start their sacrificial system again. But after three and a half years, he's going to call a halt to that. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even unto the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. And Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation. That Daniel's referring to here. So now, when the rapture takes place, when Christ's body, the church, is removed, when this dispensation, when the dispensation of grace is complete, and we're gone and we're out of here, there is still one seven-year week of years in Daniel's 70 weeks, so it takes 69 weeks to get us from the command to rebuild until, until the time when Christ is cut off, not for himself, but dying for us. He was crucified at his first coming. And because the Jews rejected their king and rejected his kingdom, then God calls a time out. He starts dealing with us Gentiles. He starts giving us new covenant blessings without us having to get circumcised and become Jews. Praise the Lord. But once the fullness of the Gentiles has come into the body of Christ, 
then God goes back to dealing with his people, the Jews, preparing them for that abomination of desolation that Jesus talked about and and preparing them to get through that seven-year period of tribulation and to prepare them to receive him at his second coming. So here we have a psalm which is a Jew's testimony to the authority and the sufficiency of his Bible to direct him and to give him life. It is his lamp to provide light on a dark and dangerous path. It will get him through the tribulation. That's why law and commandment and judgment is talked about so much in this psalm. It sets the context. So David's talking about he got how he got through. Uh, obviously, we can approach it inspirationally. And we know from the word of God how we can get through. But those Jews in the tribulation, even in a much worse time than we ever go through, They're going to know how they can get through the tribulation. It will enable them to know how to endure to the end without taking the mark of the beast so that they will be saved. And yet we don't even have the same attitude about the words of God, which we have received as being sufficient for us today, as David did in his day, or as the Jew will have to have during the tribulation to make it through. So, with that background, let's pull ourselves up to verse 17, where we left off last time. So we're dealing with this next next segment, verses 16 to 24, remember? Remember, Psalm 119 is in 22 eight-verse segments, because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, because all they deal with is consonants, not vowels. So they have 22 letters, and David takes each letter in order and writes eight verses associated with that. In this section, verses 16 to 24, the first four verses show you the experience and the activity of your heart that your heart should have toward God. It should be excited by study of God's word and doing it just like this word by word English Bible exegesis Uh, excited to see the blessing that obedience will bring when you trust God's word by faith and you apply it in practice but the second four verses so 16 17 18 19 so verses 20 21 22 23 okay you know when we get down to the last four verses they show you the the contempt And the disdain, even the hatred manifested against the person who has that kind of faith in the first four that the first four verses talk about. So other people are not going to understand you for having a faith in God's word that's like that. Um, Lost man lives today by every word that comes out of the mouth of other men. Now the shame is, a lot of Christians today live by the words that come out of the mouths of other men because they do not believe their Bible is sufficient to instruct them on all the ways that they need to be instructed. 
So it is because of that principle right there. It's because that, that principle of English Bible exodus is ignored. That, that we, that among Christians, there is the same incidence of alcoholism, of addiction, of divorce as the rest of society. Probably of murder. I just didn't look that one up. And the same incidents among those who call themselves Christians because we, we have left all of this behind. So it is only the word of God that the tribulation Jew is going to be able to trust in in order to be saved. And likewise, it is only by the word of God applied in practice that you are going to be kept in this life. And uh, so the Bible... The Bible makes its lover a stranger in this life, and yet it is a great companion in loneliness for that pilgrim who loves it. So, verse, verse, we looked at verse 16 and 17 and 18. And we need the word of God because we are servants, verse 17, verse 23. We need the word of God because we are students, verse 18. Uh, we need the word of God because we are strangers in this world, verses 19 and 20. We need the word of God because we are sufferers who bear reproach for the Lord Jesus, verses 21 to 24. So let me back it up to the verse we left off with last time, which was verse 18. Somebody stand up and read verse 18, Psalm 119. In your best playground voice. You know, Jews, in their Old Testament, their Old Testament, they call the Torah. And that word Torah means instruction or teaching. So it's translated law, because that sets the doctrinal context here. But really the word Torah means hmm, exegesis. Hebrew Bible exegesis. It's, it, it is study. It is study of every word. It's not just law in a formal sense. The verb form of this same Hebrew word is, is down in verse 33. Look down in verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes. Teach me, teach. That, that's, that is the verb form of this word law. Torah in, in verse 18. Uh, verse 102. Verse 102. I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me the verb form of the noun, the law. So Psalm 119 uses phrases associated with priests. For example, when it talks about, uh, you are my portion, verse 57. Um, Verse uh, verse 57, Thou art my portion, O Lord, I have said that I would keep thy words. And make your, it, it, it uses other phrases like to make your face shine. Verse 135, make thy face to shine upon thy servant and teach me thy statutes. So this, this is not just cognitive instruction. This is the word of God as divine intervention. Now you ought to think about that a second. Let that sink in. Because that is what your Bible will be to you if you approach it correctly. Not just cognitive instruction, but the Bible will become to you 
divine intervention. So a rescue of the Jew in impossible tribulation. And for us, it shows us a discipleship that passes on life, not law. It passes on character, not commandments. So, verse 19 the, the Bible makes its lover a stranger to this planet, as is said in verse 19. Somebody stand up and read verse 19. Okay, stranger. Again, if you do a word study, uh, you find out some synonyms. Pilgrim. Uh, it means a passenger. I mean, there's no loneliness like being a foreigner among millions of people. And, you know, it's been a couple of years since we've been able to do international trips. But uh, I did them quite often back in the day. And we, uh, took, I took three trips, went three trips to Romania doing discipleship in churches in Romania after Romania opened up, after Ceausescu was, uh, uh, you know, taken out of the way. Uh, Korea, I've been to Korea twice, been, been to other parts of Asia, been to Latin America multiple times, and it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, I can be in a city of 10 million people, but by day number two, I am the loneliest person on planet Earth. And that's even if I got a team of people with me, it's like, man, I'm just, I'm out here in the, I'm a, I'm a stranger here. What am I even doing here? Uh, you know, there's such a sense of, of loneliness. And especially if you're in a foreign country and you don't know the language, you can't read. You can't read the signs. You can't read the papers. You can't read what, what, you know, what's being written. You can't talk. You can't communicate unless it is through somebody else. It's a foreign culture. And when you first go to a foreign culture, you don't know what's important and what's not. So you are on edge all the time. You don't realize how much. In our American society, there's so much you filter out, you don't even pay attention to. And unless you are with an international student or somebody who is from another country, and they're saying, man, what's that and what's that? You don't even reckon, you've, you've filtered it all out. Well, when you go someplace else, you don't know what to filter out and what you really need to pay attention to. You know, you go to London, and you ride the tube. You didn't even know they had a tube. So you get on the tube, and it tells you to mind the gap. So, so you're like, you're checking your zipper. You're like, mind, mind the gap? What's that? Well, first time you fall in the gap, you, you're going to be minding the gap. So we've got, you know, we've got all sorts of social media. But moments of loneliness still appear. So watch verse 19. I'm a stranger in the earth. Now there's a colon. So let's do a little English Bible exegesis, even by way of grammar even by way of, you know, English grammar. I'm a stranger in the earth, so colon is like, therefore, hide not thy commandments from me. The, the commandments of driving in England are different than they are in America, right? Or driving in Japan. There's different commandments than driving here. Uh, uh, total different commandments. If you don't pay attention to that, you end up, you know, dead on the road. Uh, uh, you'll, you will be on the wrong side of the road and the wrong side of the law. And we only have a short time in which to know and to do God's will as we pass along in this life. Israel in the wilderness. 
They had a pillar of cloud that led them during the day. They had a pillar of fire that led them during the night. Well, we need to let our Bible lead us in exactly the same way. If you need it in the daytime, it needs to be your pillar of cloud. If you wake up at night, okay, it needs to be your pillar of fire. So not only is it going to lead you if you need to move, or move out of the way, or move to a different location, or know which way to go, but obviously a fire at night does a great job of keeping predators away. So, so they're not coming up on you, you know, and, and working up in your face. So t- time is too short, strength is too lacking to gain the wisdom we need apart from the Word of God. You gotta, you need, you gotta spend some time. You gotta, you gotta do some reading. You, you gotta op- crack open the book of Proverbs once in a while. And, you know, get some things that are gonna instruct you in, in, in how to make it through life. Now, this, this feeling that David has, the man after God's own heart, leads him to a crushing burden. Somebody stand up and read verse 20. My soul breaketh. And to save you time, I did a word study on that. And, and actually the Hebrew word means to be rubbed away and wearing thin. My soul is like, there's too much friction. There's, there's, there's not enough oil. I mean, just a little bit is being worn away every time. I just all the time it's wearing away and now it is getting thin. So he says, it is breaking for the longing that it hath. Obviously, that is a fervent desire. You know, the, uh, um, you know, if you just think about this in terms of, uh, properties of, of, um, mechanics and, and, physics uh like newtonian physics if i have a magnet and i have a needle and that that needle is made of steel then that needle is free to move but it will always move toward a nearby magnet there needs to be an affinity between the iron in your soul and the magnet of God's word, and and it just needs to be that way. Turn to turn to Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one tells us that when you get saved, when you trust Jesus for eternal life, and you're born again, you know He's given it to you. Well, then God does something to your soul. God does something to your soul at that moment. Somebody, somebody stand up and read 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Oh, wow. Our soul is now able to respond to the drawing power of the Word of God so that, as Peter also says, we will desire the sincere milk of the Word in the same way that a baby frequently hungers for its mother. Hmm. I mean, that should be a natural thing with you as a Christian. I think it probably was when you first got saved. I think we just get jaded. Our soul gets so worn away and we don't plug back into the Word of God in order to get it replenished, in order to get it refreshed. Uh, you know, <clears throat> h- 
honey is kind of natural. It's a natural. You, you, it, it's a natural to like honey because it's sweet and naturally you like honey. Other other things in life are kind of an acquired taste. Okay, I'm just saying. I don't have. You know, my dad was kind of a borderline alcoholic when I was young and growing up, so I just never got into drinking. So I don't. I don't know this really by experience. Except maybe if we were at a friend's house, and you know how that goes sometimes, and, and it's like, okay, uh, gin, gin is, gin, is, um, gin is lighter fluid that tastes like carrots. And, and it's like, that, you know, why would people drink that? I don't understand. I mean, surely you do need to have a mixed drink, put it in something that will take away that taste, but then why are you drinking it? So it's like, that's an acquired taste. My dad, you know, was a Falstaff man. <laughs> I don't know if they even sell Falstaff. I'm sure it must have been the cheapest because he was kind of like that. You know, he was, just, he, he was kind of a skinflint. So, uh, okay, but of the, you know, only few, very few, two or three times I ever tasted beer, it's like, okay, well, that's an acquired taste. And I'm not, I'm not you know, dogging it on you if you are a connoisseur of, you know, uh, breweries or, or whatever. I'm, that's not where I'm going with this. I'm just saying Compared to honey, uh, there are a lot of things in our life that are acquired tastes. The Word of God should not be one. It's a natural. And the only reason we don't reach for it first is we've spent too much time with the other things that are really not good for us in the, in the first place. So, uh, you know, we just get, you know, it's, uh, I'm, I mean, D- David's dealing with us right where it's at. Verse 20, my soul breaketh for the longing that hath unto thy judgments at all times. Are you ready to break in pieces because of how you long to find the Lord in his word for his judgment so he can show you what is right? I mean, our first response is always just to rely on ourself, our reason, or worse, our feelings, And okay, I'm going to go with that. Our friends, that may be as bad as either our reason or our feelings. Well, how come we don't stop and pray and say, Lord, lead me into your word to let me find something I can principalize going to help me out here and and be patient and, you know, wait on the Lord and let God speak and then take that for what you ought to do. Is your passion as intense as David's, are you straining at seeing God in the scriptures? Straining until you snap. I mean, are you willing to stop and ask directions by consulting the map that God has given you? The reason that we encounter so many unsolvable problems is because our relationship with the scripture is so superficial. And, you know, and obviously this, you know, it will, you know, it can only be superficial if you're going for readability and not accuracy. That's, you know, it's more, some, you know, modern translations, that's a trade-off. Okay, they're more readable. Um, But, but, okay, you can't get past just being superficial. So... We serve a different master. We have a different set of laws. Uh, Our citizenship is in a heavenly country. Turn to Romans chapter 12, real quick. Romans chapter 12. We got just a few minutes left. 
Romans chapter, you know, book of Romans, whole thing is about God's righteousness. And uh, I haven't been doing a survey of the book. We've just been going chapter by chapter. So uh, I haven't necessarily put that at the front of each time we preach through it, but I just try to take a chapter as it comes. But really, uh, God, yeah, Romans shows us how God's word is a code of justice for us. Somebody stand up and read Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Verse 2, Romans 12, verse 2. So let's take just a second. Let's stop. Let's look at Romans 12, verse 2. And let's do on verse 2 what we have done with uh, each one of these sections in Psalm 119. We already did this with the section we're looking at, although we didn't do it tonight. And one of the things that I had you do, if you remember, is, okay, tell me the verbs. What are the three main verbs in verse 2? Conformed, transformed, and prove. Okay, you need to not be conformed to this world, which we all are are by nature. And in order to keep from being conformed to this world, we have to be transformed. That transformation only comes by renewing your mind. You've got to get God's mind in your mind, and that is what will enable you to prove to prove out, to test, to confirm what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. So, I, so I, you know, verse 20 is just saying, look, the children of this world are conformed to this world. You cannot. If you do, that is why you're in the state you're in. I mean, I'm giving you the answer. Children of this world, they, they have to be conformed to this world But if you're a Christian, you cannot and still make it in this world. So there is, uh, you know, here we've got one who is a judge who ends the strife where wit and wisdom fail, our guide through devious paths of life, our shield when doubts assail. Verse 20, my soul breaketh for the longing that hath unto thy judgments at all times. (coughs) So it's not a spasmodic sequence, but a sustained sequence at all times. It is a steady state of the soul on the subject of God. In times of adversity, so the word of God comforts us. In times of prosperity, so the word of God humbles us. In times of affliction, so the word of God strengthens us. It is our antidote both to pride and to depression. Now, just to close this out and wrap this up in the five minutes or so we got left, you know, it's obvious that not all people love God's Word, and not even all Christians love the Bible like David did. Uh, the psalmist senses opposition, if I can just preview what, what we're, we'll start out, Lord willing, next Sunday night. Psalmist senses opposition from three types of people. The domineering person, verse 21, he's going to be cursed by God. The disdainful person, verse 22, because he is contemptuous of God. And the dangerous person, verse 23, but he is corralled by God. So if I can just try and do one more verse. 
Verse 21, watch. There's a threefold development of sin right here. Pride, which leads to error, which results in a curse. Verse 21, thou hast rebuked the proud that are cursed, which do err from my commandments. So that is a principle. Pride, error, curse. Pride, error, curse. That has been seen in history ever since Lucifer fell and became Satan. Ever since the devil fell and an angelic host followed him in rebellion, and that rebellion resulted in a curse then Adam and Eve are created in order to take, take back this planet on the way to take back the cosmos. And Satan inserts himself in the garden and, and they fall into sin. And now we are all cursed. We are all born and live under this curse. That principle is seen in, in, in the Garden of Eden. We know such people as this. Thou hast rebuked the proud that are cursed. Why? Because they are from like, I mean, even, even they could be saved. Even they, that curse could be reversed if they didn't err from thy commandments. And, and you know, and humility may not make men into angels, but pride turns even angels into devils, I'm just saying. You know, it is such a shame. The things that we see and we have seen in our city, you know, even in the last week or the last weekend or, you know, we, we, you know, we went through a, you know, a thing here where like three kids are killed at, you know, at two in Kansas City, Kansas, some, you know, somebody here, somebody there, uh, you know, and a whatever, 10-year-old, 9-year-old, the mother decapitates her child. Right, I, right? I'm not making this up. Did that happen or did it not? Happened here, not someplace else. Happened last week, not not long time ago. And and it is such a shame when we see all of that happening. A, and I know that you know we always oh, we run to this one thing. We run to these things that we think are going to be the solution where even if we dealt with them, they really wouldn't solve the problem. And, you know, so we tend to like to say, well, it's mental illness, it's this, it's that. Uh, okay, you know, what, you know what? Most of it started with pride. Uh, certainly a lot of the teenage stuff, people getting shot, no, I think that's kind of, no, I think you could, the hatred comes from the pride. And the pride comes in both in, getting involved in whatever and then and then whatever and it's such a shame and you know and we we cry out against that and from time to time i will i will address that from the pulpit i'll talk about that and certainly you know there have been times when we've had mass shootings and things like that i'll just clear off a sunday and we'll talk and we address and we deal with those things it's such a shame to see but but at the at the bottom line, those who are too proud to submit to the word of God bring shame on themselves. 
and, and we go from servants, verse 17, students, verse 18, strangers, verse 19, to sufferers, verses 20 to 23, too proud to submit to the word of God because of how others might view them. And, and you know, just, just, to, just to be fair, <clears throat> not necessarily just that they were too proud to submit to the word of God. We were too proud to submit to the word of God so that we got it to them and got them in with us in doing what they should, should have been doing that, that would have made them attached to God, attached to eternity, attached to us. So that's where we'll leave it when tonight. Let's go ahead and stand. Bump elbows with your neighbor. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, just for these few verses we're able to get to in Psalm 119. Um, God, it speaks to us. It speaks to us exactly where we're at. We're not even a fraction of the way, hardly, uh, in this psalm in its entirety. And everything that, everything that you're saying deals with us where we're at. So, Lord, we pray. God, we, uh, we unite our hearts up to you as a people. We pray for our city. We pray for our society. We pray for the suffering. God, um, Lord, but Lord, don't let it just be our thoughts and prayers. It is only the Word of God. It's going to change any of that. It has to start changing us. We have to be so convinced of what we've got in the Bible and its effectiveness to change lives. We've got to be willing to take it. We've got to stand up for it. We got to use it. We got to be out there with it. Lord, we need to. I don't know who should have been reaching. The people who have been killed, the kids, children, even who have been killed in the last few weeks. Certainly the explosion we've had in violence and deaths during the, during this time of pandemic and not from COVID, but from, but violent deaths and violent crimes. God, I don't, I don't know who should have been reaching those people if it were people closer to them than us, but God let us reach the ones you have around us and the ones that we know. Help us, help us, Lord, to give our lives to your word in such a way that so many people are saved and so many things are changed we don't even know because you, you never know what didn't happen that could have had that person not gotten saved, but they did, and that person not gotten discipled, but they did. And many of us, Lord, would have to give the testimony of, of where we would be if it were not for you reaching us with your words. So, Lord, use us to reach others. Do that to your glory. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.